This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And after taking a hit, Because of our slow, confused, and stalled vaccine rollout, the government has been announcing the purchase of tens of thousands more doses, some of which are supposed to arrive soon. And this is polls show that, as you heard in Bob's news, nearly 70% of us are blaming Ottawa on this very slow and stalled rollout. And furthermore, most Canadians don't believe Trudeau when he says that everybody who wants to get a vaccination will get one by September. Meanwhile, the government has just announced its new gun control bill, which will allow cities to ban guns. And uh, is, is anyone listening? Is this at the top of anyone's agenda at the moment? And also, 58 countries signed on to a Canadian-led declaration against arbitrary detentions, which was clearly inspired by the situation of the two Michaels, Spavor and Kovrig, but did not mention China by name. And for all that we held back on doing that, it still inspired a vicious response from China. So uh, was that worth doing? Will it do any good? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Also, some parts of the province are reopening or at least trying to on this heavy snow day, despite very dire warnings about a possible third wave. So let's get to our panel. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Liberal MPP, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Welcome, everybody. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Okay, let us begin with Karen. So uh, out of all those various things happening, um, would you say that the vaccine rollout is still the top? I think so. Yeah. For, well, I guess, I mean, I think it depends on, on where you are uh, in terms of, you know, if you're a senior, definitely top of mind. If your business is closed, vaccines, definitely top of mind. Um, if you are an at-risk or a vulnerable person, then that definitely vaccine is top of mind. So I I do think that it is still a significant issue for the majority of Canadians in this country. And what about these, we keep hearing these assurances, uh, John, from the Prime Minister, the vaccines are coming, we're buying more. And uh, I don't know, sometimes I, the last week or so, I've been looking at the screen in disbelief and he's announcing doses that that will come in the spring and or the summer and he's announcing production capacity that's going to come on stream in a year or so and i'm thinking uh none of this amounts to protecting us when we need protection which is now yeah you know what i i find that people are starting to get really really skeptical and, and rightly so i think with respect to, to to the prime minister's you know protestations about you know vaccines coming and, and not coming i think the issue you know remains that if, if if you start losing people's confidence in what you're saying then i think that's 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 trouble and i think that we're seeing that with reflected in the polling numbers and it reminds me of i was watching governor andrew cuomo's comments in his oh, press co- press uh, conference yesterday when he was trying to uh, deflect some of the criticism he's been getting about some of the long-term care fiasco that was under his watch in, in New York. Um, and, you know, and people afterwards were shaking their heads saying, I just don't trust him anymore, or I can't listen to him anymore, or I don't believe him. I think when it gets to that stage, Libby, it becomes a problem. I, you know, we're all hoping and, and willing 
the prime minister and, and his word that, that we're going to be getting, you know, millions of doses. I think Pfizer says that they're going to be giving 10 million doses or shots between April and June. Uh, and now the prime minister is saying that, you know, most people, if not all Canadians, should be vaccinated by the, by the fall. We all want that to happen. But I think what's happened is we've heard it before. Uh, we heard it going into 2021. We heard it at the beginning of, of this year in January. And then all of a sudden there were stoppages and, and, and you know, supplies being shut down or, or diverted. And, and the prime minister was scrambling to try to make, make messages of that. And then Kim comes back and says, oh, no, no, we've got more doses coming. And, we, we, you know, Moderna and Pfizer's promised us and J&J's coming down with more. So I, I, we all want that to happen. But I think people are getting a bit skeptical. And, and this will remain the number one issue, uh, given the fact that people are talking about a spring election. And this will be an issue whether or not the liberals will want one if this is not resolved by March or April or May. Uh Charles, uh, do you agree? Is he basically losing credibility? And, uh, you know, I marveled at it even a week ago that he keeps repeating the same thing, which may or may not come to pass. Well, I mean, trust is a big part of all this, and he hasn't changed his tune. We were always anticipating, uh, they had said that they were anticipated by the end of April, all the vaccines that they'll be negotiated, and now we need him today. And he is fighting hard to try to to secure those vaccines. And we're reliant, unfortunately, on foreign uh, delivery. And we didn't heed the warnings that were before us back in the 2000s and during SARS and H1N1 when we realized we didn't have sufficient capacity to manage this at home. And and now here we are reliant on, on, on foreign supply and there have been delays. But it's unfortunate because... As you've said it before in your program, I mean, we're at 2.7 per 100 uh, vaccines versus Israel at 61.7 or UK at 16.2. And when we look at those comparisons, people get anxious. And, and these are people's lives. So well, and, we, and we have to do better. We have well, to do better. it's also, I mean, you made the point that we're lying on foreign vaccines. Uh, so does Israel. And no. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get to this actually later in the program. Uh, but, you know, there have been there's been stuff written on lessons to be learned from Israel's rollout. And if you look, if you compare those lessons to what the province is doing now, the province doesn't look like those lessons are learned. And, and again, Karen, I mean, I'm um, uh, as of the weekend, we had fallen to something like 47th in the world for the rollout. I mean, you know, what is it? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the risks to, to all levels of government right now are, are that um, we, we're just playing catch up. And and when you see some of the strategic stuff that Israel did in terms of uh, planning and, and, and executing their rollout, when you read about how uh, Britain managed their, their vaccine rollout and how they actually had a registry where they had um, people participate in trials, clinical trials to help advance the approval of the vaccine, when you see what all those countries did to be strategically ahead of a solution, and then you can compare it to what we're doing, it, it looks like we're, we're not even playing in the same league. And and it's showing in our vaccination rate. Well, um, and, 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 and that's the part I think the Canadians are struggling with, is that how, how, did, how did every other country recognize the, the, the imperative to, to be ahead of this vaccine and, and, and get it and, and order it and have it administered and have it delivered? And, and yet we still, as a if there is a grand plan, it's being held quite secret because we don't know what it is. And all of that feeds into the anxiety that there isn't a plan. And so really what the government hasn't done well yet, which they have time to do, is communicate. But even today we read, oh, it's everyone over 80. Okay, everyone agree. Everyone over 80 should get vaccinated. But then there's like side scuffles about, well, maybe it should be this group or that group. Just make a decision, communicate it, move on. Well, I'm, I, I'm going to be dealing with this uh with with the top uh and the even with the over 80 uh and other provinces are are going lower than that over 70 they are part of a huge priority list when most experts and Israel said just go by age if you go by age you will right. prevent the most death and Ontario is not doing that i i've got a call from mexico here that i'd like to oh. take that is i think it's going to be a bit sobering we've got suzanne in mexico hi hi libby um i'm i'm canadian from ontario that went as a snowbird winters in uh, mexico and 
I'm sad to say that Canada is so far behind because two weeks ago we registered with the government to get our needle. Yesterday we got a call and this morning we got our vaccine. Wow. In Mexico? In Mexico. And they say this is a third world country, but I'm getting it ahead of all my friends and and relatives in Canada. And it's um, AstraZeneca, what we're getting coming from, I think, England. Okay, well, uh, good for you, Ola. Congratulations on your vaccine. And and thanks for telling us that, Suzanne. I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Bye now. Okay, and and the calling is another thing. I mean, one of the things I know that older people are getting very exercised about is how will they know when Mm -hmm. it's their turn in Britain all the older people were actually phoned by the National Health Service. Charles, what do you think? Well, there is uh, a lot of vaccines that have been negotiated, seven different companies and 284 million, so they're promised. But the delivery and uh, the execution of those vaccines are also a problem. And in Canada, with the federation that we are, and the different provinces are, are responsible, we need a better coordinated effort in making that happen. Um, I know, and I agree with uh, with some of the comments made, we don't really know what the prices are, what the timeline for delivery is, whether there's penalties now for the delays or or how those contracts are being enforced uh, because of the confidentiality of these agreements. And that's problematic. Um, it, you know, and then, then we have provinces wanting to make negotiations on their own right. Uh, it, it is it is an issue. And I, I, you know, I appreciate what Mexico has done for our snowbird down there. Uh, I think it'll be, it's just taking too long for that to happen in Canada. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I take your point about the contracts, but I think that we're kind of over a barrel. I, I, I saw a, a write up on some of the European contracts and even the ones that were released were so redacted as to be almost completely useless. And um, at this point, if the drug company says, uh, apparently some of them even had clauses that said, if you disclose what's in this contract, we're, we're going to stop your shipment. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I think is, is kind of like uh, hostage taking. And, and speaking of hostage taking, John, what do you think of this declaration uh, that was led by Canada and Mark Garneau and clearly inspired by our hostages against, you know, arbitrary hostage taking. Uh, I didn't know you needed a a declaration to be against that. And then a vicious response from China. Well, I think it just speaks to the larger problem that we're having with China. And, and, you know, we're seeing it now, the the debate with China, it's being amplified because, of course, with the new election of, of President Biden, uh, in the U.S. And, and the fact that, you know, the, the, it was widely reported that he had a two-hour conversation uh, with, uh, with the Chinese leadership and, and, you know, what comes out of it and how they're going to be dealing with this issue and whether they're going to be helping us to release the two Michaels that, that China has, uh, you know, or, or at all. I know that, you know, the pre- previous administration did try to help or did try to intervene, but it, it just speaks to the general issue that we have and how the prime minister has been handling China, which is why I think Aaron O'Toole from day one has been absolutely, um, a dog with a bone when it comes to this issue. Like he, he just sent out a, no, uh, a release saying that, that, you know, the Olympics 2022 should be moved. Uh, and, and, and all the, all the issues with respect to that because he knows and he sees a bit of a weakness when it comes to the prime minister dealing with China. And this is yet another example of it. So I do, I do think it speaks to a broader issue, quite frankly, Libby, that, that Canada needs to, needs to, you know, hunker down when it comes to dealing with China or else they're just going to keep steamrolling all over us and all over the U.S. Yeah, I mean, and there was this very disturbing report in the Globe and Mail that while all of this is going on, universities are partnering with Huawei uh, when there have been numerous warnings about dealing with them uh, and and letting them in to see our technology, Karen. The, well, the government is, I know, it's the a government's enough funding. The government's enough announced funding. For, for you know, working with Huawei on that, it's just it's just mind-boggling what's going on. And and you know the, the the prime minister wants to talk tough about China, but his actions are quite are far from the uh, are far from that. Karen, you're yeah. saying, well, it is a head scratcher because it, it it looks like we're trying to have it both ways. We're trying to be tough on China, and uh, then we're we're trying to negotiate with China. 
even the fact that we tried to negotiate a vaccine with China and then were surprised that they wouldn't deliver it to us, it is, again, um, troubling from the perspective of you know, where we sit in the world. We're a middle power. We don't have influence over China. The only thing we can influence is our own decisions around how we want to engage with China. That's all we can influence. And time and time again, we capitulate to China because we think that that's going to help us, and it doesn't. I think it just actually exposes our weakness. And uh, so the reality is that they do. They are holding. They have taken hostage two of our citizens in, in retribution. And, and that, the, that we would even think about entering into any kind of research and development with Huawei is just completely shocking. <laughs> uh, Charles, this morning, Aaron O'Toole said we should not allow our athletes to go to China for those Olympics. Is, is that something that will resonate? Uh, and is it timely at all? Um, so Aaron O'Toole has been very consistent on his, um, uh, his issue with respect to China. And when it comes to sporting events and athletes, I think that's more of a symbolic issue. I'm more concerned about um, any issues in respect to controlling companies with investments. And there's a small business. There's a, there's a, a um, submission before the legislature right now, a, a private member's bill trying to prevent companies like the, like the Canada Pension Plan from having access to deals with China. And that's a bit of political interference. And this is also motivated by the Uyghur issue and the human rights issue in Northeast China and some of the other elements, not just with respect to uh, our Michaels. And um, this is a big issue, and and China is pushing back. And we are being diplomatic, obviously, um, but I'm now more concerned what ramification does this have on our international trade and activities between private individual companies, not with government, but with our Canadian companies dealing with China and the ramifications that has. Well, we we have yet to make that decision about using Huawei for the 5G network. And we've been warned that if we go with Huawei, then uh, some countries might not want to deal with us in terms of sensitive intelligence. Do you have a, a, a view on that, Charles? Well, I'm concerned. I am concerned. I am concerned with, with the technology aspects and the ex- and when I travel to China, we're being monitored honestly immediately, and it's 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 unnerving to be uh, noted in that capacity. And so I, I do have worries in respect to our technology, and I'd rather see more Canadian based um, and more um, uh, systems in play that protect our Canadian uh, independence. Okay, you know, uh, uh, our, our, uh, our friend Suzanne, who called in from Mexico, she's getting a lot of reaction here. Uh, let's go to Ed in Burlington. Hi, Ed. Yes, good morning. Yes, uh, I have, I am, originally I'm from Mexico, and I have a lot of friends that are doctors or nurses. I have an old friend that is in a, is in a, in a knowledge home, and they haven't received the, the vaccination. I don't know where if there is any influence or any other kind of a, venue for this um, caller to get his, her vaccination so early, so soon. Well, I, I didn't ask her where she was from. If she's in a, a colony full of Canadians, she would be in a hehick. But I should have asked where she was from, because I guess in Mexico, like in Canada, it's different in every province. Well, yeah, but that is unfair for the, for the Mexicans. And uh, to, that a foreigner can get their vaccination earlier than, than the rest of the group. I, mm-hmm. I I would certainly understand people and, uh, who... And it would be the same thing if someone comes from Mexico and gets the vaccination here in Canada and gets it. We would be up in arms. Well, um, we'll have to figure it out. In the United States, if you uh, certainly if you spend a lot of time there, if you own property there, a lot of Canadians have been vaccinated in the United States long before they'd get vaccinated here. Ed, uh, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you for calling. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Um, Melanie in High Park. Hello, Melanie. Hi, hi. Wonderful to be great show as usual. You really get us going. (laughs) I was reading the Israel Times last week, and it had an article called Israel's Coronavirus Star, Dr. Naaman Ash, N-A-C-H-M-A-N-A-S-H, from Tel Aviv University. Now, I was shocked what I read. He is very skeptical 
about the uh, new vaccination, just the average one that we're supposed to get, will it be very efficient in seniors? And definitely he doesn't believe that it's going to be efficient for the mutations in the coronavirus. He's, He's not very, uh, very happy with that. And just one comment on China, if I can put my two cents in. Uh, Neville Chamberlain came off the plane in the 1930s and said, peace in our time, peace in our time. This is what's happening to us with Canada and China. There's no peace with China. China's very, very uh, insecure country. They're still living in the old uh, China where, you know, respect is everything. Well, respect is a two-way street, and China does not respect us or anybody. China, just like certain parts of Russia, does not respect individuality. So we'll never get anywhere with them. The only thing they understand is money, money, money. That's it. So there's my two cents. Libby, have a wonderful, blessed day. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, well, I, I would agree that China doesn't respect us, and, uh, you know, <laughs> why should they? Uh, but uh, in terms of what Melanie said about the vaccines, there it's, it's the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not even approved yet here, and uh, there are some doubts about whether it is effective against the variant. Uh, so and and it actually uh, South Africa decided not to use it because of that reason, and they have a big shipment that they're either sending back or or doing something else with. Uh, I want to turn to a bit of gossip with our panel now, and and Ooh. Twitter was a bit a buzz today because. Mark Carney tweeted for the first time, and there's all kinds of speculation that this means he wants to go into politics. So let's start with our liberal, Charles Sousa. Have you been hearing anything about this? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I saw his tweet yesterday, and I follow, I'm following him now, and we'll see what happens next. He's obviously uh, a dynamic individual. I had the privilege of being with him when he was the governor of the Bank of England and uh, within his office, and uh, he is uh, a person with a lot of knowledge. I think the Prime Minister's office has also been utilizing his his experience and advice and matters. We'll see. It, it certainly is uh, the first reaction was he's running. We'll see what happens next. Uh, okay, what would you, what would you, uh, Charles? You do you think he is or he isn't? And and uh, could he give the Prime Minister a run for his money as leader of the party? Well, he has been sought after for a while. Uh, people respect and admire him. Um, he uh, is young still in, in his ability to go through the political years ahead, which will likely take another 10 or 15. Um, I don't know if uh, he won't challenge the prime minister, unless, of course, there's a desire for the prime minister to make some decisions next as he goes forward. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. Okay, John Bianco, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I think a lot of us that are political watchers, including the, my fellow panelists, would, would, weren't surprised when he sort of finished his job in, in the UK and came back and, and the prime minister used him as an advisor for a short period of time, or I'm not sure if he still uses him as an advisor. Um, I think the, the, the chattering class was that he was going to run and, and uh, throw his name in the ring. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. But I would only caution the liberals that, you know, their track record for attracting highly educated and well-accomplished uh, folks to run for, for their party and for leaderships uh, does not work particularly well. Uh, and I note the, the, pr- the previous example of Michael Ignatieff. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know if you can compare uh, Mark Carney to Ignatieff. Uh, I, he, perhaps he, he has a, a, a little more charisma, Karen? Yeah, I, there, there's uh, no question that he's a talented and uh, successful individual. The challenge, and, and Libby, I'm kind of with John on this one, you know, the challenge is that uh, people assume that smart, intelligent, accomplished people can suddenly get catapulted into being a politician and be successful at it. And there is a skill to being a politician. And particularly if you're going to lead a party, uh, because you need to build those alliances, you need to build those, um, those that base of support. And it's it's really difficult to catapult in at the top. And someone like Mark Carney, he doesn't want to start at the bottom. Well, and so that that becomes a challenge. Um, and that he, you know, he assumes that he's got this natural base because he's naturally gifted and he's had all these successes. And that's a mistake that a lot of people make because you know, in politics, you build your base by, um, you know. By, 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 you know, by working with people, by accomplishing things together, by give and take, by going through the trenches together, by building alliances. 
And, uh, and that takes time. And that's often why, um, you know, with a few exceptions, that when we see people at the top of the political pyramid, typically they have been in politics for some time. They haven't just been zipped zip down uh, to, to take the helm. And, and I think that that's part of the challenge um, that we saw with Bill Morneau as finance minister, you know, an incredibly accomplished uh, individual uh, with a string of success behind him. But, you know, maybe just a little bit of a blind spot when it came to the politics of it. Okay. Uh, Suzanne is uh, back. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Suzanne, <laughs> Suzanne, okay, where are you in Mexico? Okay, I called to tell you, I am in a small town in between Cancun and Playa del Carmen called uh, Puerto Morelos in the community. I'm not in a next, I'm just in a little house in, in a Mexican community. Uh-huh, and uh, did they ask if you were a resident or what did they I ask? am a temporary resident. Okay. So well, you had yeah, to be a good temporary good. resident sure. uh, to qualify, um, yeah, and over 60. Okay, over 60. That's 60, young. and they, they're telling us that by end of February or March, everybody over 60 will be done here. Wow, wow. I, I don't know if they'll, they'll, they'll get there, but that's what they're telling us. Thanks again, Suzanne, for your call. No problem. Okay, um, and on that note of vaccine envy... Uh, going to end somebody over 60, uh, they're going to finish vaccinating them before over 80s here even gets started. Don't even get me started on that. Uh, so thank you so much, Karen Stintz, Charles Souza, and John Capobianco. And we will talk soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Okay, we are taking a quick break and uh, we're going to follow up on the vaccination saga and the fact that over 80s are at least now on the list. We'll be talking to Dr. Iris Gorfinkel when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We're still talking about the vaccines and the good news is that people over 80 in the community have been added to the priority list for vaccination as soon as we get some supply. But they are just one of a long list of priorities. And as of now, neither they nor their doctors know how they will get access to their shots. Uh, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Hi, Iris. Oh, hello there, Libby. Hi. Um, how are you? I'm doing all right. How's, how's life been treating Libby? Everything is just fine, but, but every day I get more and more exercised about this vaccine rollout and the kind of priority that people are getting. And now we see that over 80s are on the list, but they're one of a very big list, even though a lot of medical experts and the successful countries say, if you just focus on that, you will prevent the most death and and the most severe illness. Well, I think they're right about that. Let's look at who's dying. Over 80% has been those in long-term care. And basically, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, basically did just that. They looked at and asked a few questions. They asked, who is dying of the disease? Who is being hospitalized from the disease? And who among us is most likely to spread the disease? And that's why stage one involved, you know, staff and residents of long-term care homes and adults at that time, 70 and older, frontline health care workers who are in direct, close, physical contact with patients and, of course, adults in indigenous communities. But now as we enter stage two, they're really emphasizing those seniors over 80 and, of course, adults from racial, racialized communities who have been disproportionately affected. So we need to define that. Who are those racialized individuals? Those who are black, those who come from South Asian communities, those who are low-income. In fact, if you consider low-income, nearly half of all cases live in low-income areas. Okay, but Iris, um, according to, it's a very big list of priorities, and it includes all kinds of essential workers. I mean... It's 
I mean, I, I'm an essential worker sitting here. Yeah, but behind many layers of plexiglass. <laughs> exactly. So although you're an essential worker, you know, if it weren't for the longer-term health conditions, you would actually be in the probably in a somewhat later stage. But you, you have other things that justify putting you into the second stage. But you're right. I mean, a lot of, you know, the marginalized, it's a super long list. They want to, you know, the second stage is supposed to encompass people, residents and staff in shelters and correctional facilities and group homes, the homeless, migrant workers, first responders, police, firefighters. You know, but it's interesting. Healthcare workers are actually a somewhat less of a focus. They want to get those primary caregivers to those who are at high risk. Well, you're talking about the national, but the, again, uh, do you think that the province should have been a little more focused on this? Uh, because it's also, uh, you know, we know that the less simple it is, the more likely uh, things are to go awry. Well, the biggest problem has actually been one of supply. You know, for all of our sighs and worries about, you know, who's on the list and how we're going to prioritize, the problem is we, we don't have the supply. You know, so we've approved two vaccines. We've got the Pfizer vaccine, and remember, that requires all that special storage. So that means family doctors like me can't easily give it. And same with the pharmacies. Like, how are we going to give out something that has to be kept at minus 70 degrees? And that's the majority of the vaccines we hope to start getting now. Now, that could change if we approve J&J, that's still not approved, and AstraZeneca, which is also not approved. But we've, we've got our struggles ahead of us, for sure. But the problem right now has been one of, when are we getting the shots in? <laughs> when are we finally going to receive them? Have you been getting, uh, we here have been getting lots of calls from people saying, okay, uh, uh, how will I know when it's my turn? Are your patients turning to you to try to figure that out? You know what? They are. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a shared mutual exercise and helplessness right now. They're begging me to put them on a list, and the list is, I'm not even sure when I'll have the vaccine in my own office. What we know is the second stage of the vaccines do not really involve family doctors just yet. They, what, what they're doing is planning to give it out, and hospitals, some 20 hospitals across Ontario are going to be administering these vaccines. They're having on-site clinics for northern and remote First Nation communities and on-reserve indigenous residents, on-site clinics for adult chronic home care recipients, and then and it's mobile sites, which I'm excited about, but even that is very limited. It's limited to, con, you know, living facilities in which lots of people are congregating, older people, and urban indigenous communities. So Ontario is now working on, and this is exciting, Ontario is now developing a web portal for booking vaccine appointments, but how long will that take? We don't know. Okay, I, let's take a call from Deborah in Georgina. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Uh, thank you very much, Libby, for hosting this conversation because I'm, I don't want to spend a lot of time reiterating what everybody else feels. But quite frankly, I really perceive this as a, as a crisis, okay? This is a crisis. And why Canadians are so complacent I don't know, okay, because we should be demonstrating in the streets, okay, because first Trudeau, he sends all these uh, contradictory, ambiguous messages, so we're going to get vaccinated at the end of March. Now today, no, no, everything's fine. I can't show the contracts. We're going get, to get you guys all vaccinated by the end of September. Well, you know what? I have lost a year out of my life like everybody else. I'm turning 71 in May. If I'm not going to get vaccinated until the end of September, that takes me to a year and a half and everybody else. Personally, I find this whole situation despicable, and I'm even more frustrated, and I'm a very emotional person, and I'm not going to keep back my emotions, but I have my family and my grandchildren in Israel, and I know everything that's going on there, okay? They have vaccination stations there where they're providing food as encouragement to try to get people to come out for the anti-vaxxers. 
They've got stations now where you can drive through in your car, get tested, and in 24 hours, they're going to get back to you and tell you if you tested positive or negative. What they're doing there is, okay. is unbelievable. They're so advanced, okay? Well, they're, they're, I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off because we're, we're, uh, we're basically running out of time. Yeah, I'm uh, we've, okay, I we've, think, I, I'm, I'm I think I you made your point. Here, but you know what? I don't care if it's winter. If somebody organized a rally down in Queens Park, and I don't even live in Toronto anymore, I would drive in and I would go there because Trudeau is pulling the eyes over all of us. Okay, Deborah, I think we know how you feel. Thanks. Yep, a lot of uh, people are feeling like that. Uh, We know Israel leads the world. Three-quarters of their population, sorry, two-thirds are now vaccinated. Everybody over 60 for sure, that wanted a vaccine, got one. We know that. Um, if, if we could be even even somewhat behind that, we'd be doing really, really well. Um, we are soon going to be talking to uh, somebody who is in charge of all of that. So I'm going to wrap up. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Gloria. Okay. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, Dr. Dirk higher and uh, he is on the vaccine rollout tax force and he is the coordinator of outbreak response for the province a very special guest when we return you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with libby Snymer on zoomer radio Welcome back. And now I would like to welcome a very special guest. Dr. Dirk Heyer is Ontario's chief coroner. Over the summer, he was named coordinator of the provincial outbreak response, and he sits on the vaccine distribution panel. And Dr. Heyer, you may know we have a largely older audience, very anxious to hear what you have to say. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for the honor of being here. Okay, well, uh, so on the weekend, uh, tens of thousands of older adults were very happy to learn that people over 80 have been added to the priority list for the first phase of vaccinations. But nonetheless, there's a lot of criticism because it's a very long list of those priorities and uh, our federal vaccine panel and countries that have been really successful have focused on age first and foremost as as the the best way to prevent death and very serious illness. Yeah, there's no question about that. That age is recognized as a key risk factor, especially those over age 60, key risk factor for severe illness and mortality. And in our first prioritization um, planning, we did focus on seniors who were in congregate living settings because we know that age is by far a significant factor, but also um, it's important to recognize how people can get the, vac- the virus. And, uh, and unfortunately, what we've seen, the tragedy over the COVID period of time, those in long-term care and retirement homes and other congregate settings, there's a greater risk of transmission. So we focused on that group first. We also focused on health care workers, because we know that there is a significant risk of exposure uh, to their patients if the healthcare worker happens to be unwell, but also to the healthcare worker and uh, important to ensure that we have the health capacity to uh, respond to those who have illness. And then finally, uh, the other two areas, one being adults with chronic home, uh, home care, uh, many of them being in the older population and also Indigenous given the significant risk. So what we recognized after the uh, initial part of the first phase is we recognized that uh, the, those who were independently living and uh, yet over 80 were uh, at continued risk. And we, had, we heard feedback from a number of others that in the healthcare worker uh, priority group, there were a number that were not patient-facing and a number that weren't uh, at uh, an older age. So we moved the over 80 back or more forward to where we are now uh, to... Uh, appropriately respond to that increased risk. Right. But as I said, you you named some of the other priorities in that basket there. And uh, the priorities, uh, there's criticism, they're, they're not 
clearly ranked. And uh, there's one and a half million essential workers who could conceivably get the vaccines ahead of those older people. Or are you going to rank them? No. Well, each is, we're talking about essential workers. What, yeah. what we're, essential workers is in phase two. And so we will continue to move forward with the populations in parallel. So all of the different uh, populations that are in the phase two group will continue in parallel. We move with over 80, then we move down by five years as we progress through the ages. And there clearly are risks in other populations as well um, as you get to through the older age groups. And those risks are also disproportionately affecting other populations. And so there are, are many with health conditions that would be at significant risk of serious illness. There are other populations that were disproportionately affected. Um, those who are black and racialized have also suffered significantly uh, with illness through the COVID period of time. So there's a number of priorities, and we would be doing them in, 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 in parallel to ensure that everybody has the opportunity to who has the higher risk, and we would put all the higher risk people as we move forward, so the highest risk of the healthcare conditions, similar to the older population, the highest risk in those communities, similar to the older population. So relative risk would be present as we move through the different vaccines. Now, again, if we get lots of vaccines, that will change things dramatically and we'll move everything much more quickly. Uh, but again, so so what do you say to the people um, who are criticizing that it's 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 not simple and in terms of age? And they also say that by by having all those other groups in at the same level of priority, you, you might unintentionally make it harder for people who have mobility issues or cognitive issues to get their vaccine. Yeah, the delivery mechanism mechanism is is important. And so it's really uh, crucial that we think through to make sure that we have a delivery mechanism, a variety of different types, whether it be a clinic, whether it be in a hospital, whether it be uh, a, pri a primary care practitioner, whether it be a pharmacy, all the different vaccine delivery mechanisms will offer be, also be aligned to the different populations to ensure that we have uh, an equitable delivery process to all of those that have uh, priorities and, and are, are at risk of, of illness. Uh, speaking of that, uh, I can tell you that here we have lots of inquiries. People are very anxious. And, and the question at the top of everybody's mind is, how will I know when it's my turn? And we've heard that there's a portal in development. There's a call center in development. Uh, can you tell us any more about how people will uh, know it's their turn? So you've heard correctly. Uh, the planning is ongoing right now to be able to uh, provide the best opportunity for people to know and the mechanisms of how we will deliver, uh, working together with the public health units and the ministry to figure out the, the best way possible to deliver, to notify. And so uh, robust communications, um, also uh, delivery mechanisms that will uh, be able to reach those who are um, ready and willing to have vaccination. And I have to tell you, that's one of the um, challenging but great parts of this is that people want the vaccine and uh, and that makes our job that much harder because everybody wants it now and that's a good thing and we, we certainly want to give it as quickly as we can and really as we get more supply all of this is going to be a lot easier and a lot more clear uh, because we'll have lots of vaccine and lots of ways to deliver it. Well, uh, again, um, so is everybody going to be able to, say, register online at the same time? I mean, I've heard stories in Florida. I mean, it was like a lottery trying to uh, get onto the website with call centers, like the same issue. They bring busy. Uh, are, are there, you know, many, many people being hired now to, to man these things or what? All of those things are in development and working through to make sure we learn from other jurisdictions and uh, make our our plans in a way that we'll be able to provide the best service for everybody. Uh, and uh, I want to clarify, what exactly is the relationship with public health? And, you know, we were taken on a tour. We saw these wonderful photo ops of these big clinics. However, even with the rollout of the regular flu vaccine, there were serious issues with communication uh, between public health, which was responsible for getting 
the uh, vaccines to, say, doctor's offices and uh, public health in Toronto, like they, they won't ever ask, answer a question. And uh, they have fax machines. So what exactly is the role of public health in making this happen? So public health are integral across the province, the difference, uh, the 34 units across the province in providing uh, a, a key, key part in the vaccine planning and the vaccine delivery. And each unit will have uh, uh, specific approaches that they will implement and, uh, and utilize within their own jurisdictions. They know their regions the best. And so they will deliver in the, the most effective way, uh, whether it be clinic, whether it be mobile teams, whether it be working together with their primary care practitioners, whether it's working with the hospitals, all of that would be um, informed by the uh, specific knowledge of the local area that the public health unit uh, has jurisdiction of. So uh, does that mean there's going to be 34 different methods? And, and a lot of them, again, uh, I know they upgraded to a provincial, uh, a provincial system, computer system, but a lot of them have very outdated fax machines. I can't speak to each of the units, but I can say that we have one computer system that uh, the vaccination is, uh, is, uh, is captured in. So we have one IT solution so that we know about the vaccination and how the vaccination is occurring across Ontario within that, uh, that single solution that everybody will utilize so we have a good concept and knowledge of all of the vaccinations that occur. And uh, I've, I've heard a date of March the 1st for some of those people over 80 to start getting vaccinated. Is that realistic? So those plans, the plans are ongoing right now. Um, I don't have a specific date that I can give you, but uh, clearly we uh, recognize the importance and, uh, and have moved the over 80 to uh, the phase one area, recognizing the feedback and the, the, the information that others had provided to help us think through this. Uh-huh. Um, turning now to um, long-term care. Today was finally supposed to be the day when uh, you're finished vaccinating long-term care. Do you know if that is actually happening? Um, so I don't have the specific uh, numbers, but, uh, but certainly, as I understood, that uh, the, the goal was to have all uh, long-term care residents um, home having offered the vaccine, uh, the next phase that we, as we have more vaccine, we're going to return to those homes, provide uh, vaccination to the staff and essential caregivers and others who were not in a position to be vaccinated, potentially because of outbreak or other reasons. Those would be residents and staff and caregivers as well. So that's where we're working on next, as well as in the higher risk retirement homes and the First Nations elder care uh, facilities. Now, in, in terms of the vaccination and long-term care, and, and Ontario uh, General Rick Hillier was talking about the technical issues, but uh, the fact is that we were basically three weeks behind other provinces in getting that done, and that's reflected in the death toll. I mean, are, are there any lessons learned from that in terms of having a broader uh, you know, a broader scope. As you mentioned, we had uh, healthcare workers who didn't even, you know, don't even deal with the public who were vaccinated and some long-term care people weren't. Now we've, uh, we've learned from our, the first healthcare worker guidance that we released and we've uh, recently revised that and provided more distinctive uh, and more direct um, groups that allow people to have a, a greater definition of which workers and the order of those workers um, as they will be vaccinated over the next uh, period of time. Oh, can you give us a hint about that? Oh, it's all, it's released. Um, it's, it should be posted publicly today. So what we did is we um, used exposure risk. We used risk of transmission to um, uh, uh, populations that they're providing care to. And we also looked at outbreak data and uh, defined who would be the highest priority healthcare worker risk, and those would be ones that are uh, caring for those in COVID uh, uh, hospital wards or in COVID settings, and also those who are providing um, providing uh, a response to the COVID-19 uh, virus, which would be assessment centers, uh, testing centers, paramedics, and other uh, first responders, as well as those providing care, healthcare within communities of greater risk 
um, or greater uh, prevalence of COVID. So we've released that, and then we've uh, stepped it down from very high, very the highest priority to very high priority, and then moved down in uh, different uh, groups to allow a more defined approach and to utilize within the uh, the parallel uh, provision of vaccine to other populations. Okay, so that's that's interesting. That's good that you've prioritized that, but I'm just trying to get my head around this. So if everybody, say, is going on to a portal and registers uh, or whatever, then then somebody is going to go through that and, and prioritize it? Is that how it's going to work? No, the specifics, uh, as far as the portal go, it, that's, that work is in, and uh, work in that area is still ongoing. And uh, what we've provided is for the hospitals and the public health units to work together and uh, those in the healthcare field to work together to identify those particular healthcare providers and then work to schedule those into the clinics or into the vaccination processes that they'll have within the, um, within the public health units. Uh, so uh, we are uh, almost out of time here, Dr. Heyer. What do you say to people, as as I said, people, especially in that over 80 age brackets, are at home, they're anxious. Uh, what's your advice to them? Well, I think it's advice that I give to a lot of people. This is tough times, and, uh, and, and, I, and I don't have an easy answer. I recognize the challenges that people face, recognize the importance of, of uh, doing their best to uh, protect from any signs of infection. And, and I, I send a strong message of, of um, support, recognition, and, uh, and, and really, truly um, acknowledgement of how challenging that is and that we are trying to get the vaccine as quickly as possible in the most efficient, effective, and equitable way to everybody so that they can uh, hopefully achieve the best protection and therefore move from this challenging time that we're in into uh, a more uh, normal, whatever new normal will be, a more normal time uh, with vaccination. Okay. Dr. Dirk Heyer, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Well, uh, that answered some of our questions. I guess uh, it's all a work in progress and let's hope that the progress on it is good. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.